the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. That's the main difference between the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's not that suddenly the Holy Spirit appears on the world scene in the book of Acts. He's always existed, being a part of the the Trinity of God. But it's that in the Old Testament, he only was assigned on certain individuals. Whereas now, the Holy Spirit is available for all who are believers in Christ. So that's the major difference between the Old and New Testament. Did you know that from the creation through the kings and prophets of Israel to the death of Christ, the Spirit of God was assigned to a sole individual? As easy as it might be to assume the Spirit functioned the same way between now and then, it's actually not the case. In today's message, Pastor Gary reflects on the stark contrast between the Spirit's role in the Old and New Testament. In his study, you'll learn that before Christ, the Holy Spirit only anointed one person at a time. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Book of Acts, chapter 1. I I say in jest about let's start a good church split and study the book of Acts, but truthfully, uh, many of you probably are aware of the fact that the subject of the Holy Spirit and the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then things that go with that subject, like the gifts of the Spirit, are somewhat controversial and can be divisive in some churches. People are pretty passionate if you have any exposure to church and you have any personal beliefs about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, people will really fight over these topics. And unfortunately, it has caused great division in the body of Christ over the centuries. Obviously, I hope that's not the case for us. But what I am going to challenge you to do is as we read through the book of Acts, for you just to simply to ask the Lord for fresh eyes, to read the scripture with fresh eyes, because the subject needs to be read from the standpoint of what does the Bible say, not what does my tradition say. Now, I'm thankful for my tradition. I grew up in the church, even though I grew up in the church, didn't really get saved till I was 15. And I can tell you that there's some things in my tradition that I had to re-examine in light of God's word. For example, my tradition taught infant baptism, and so I was baptized as an infant. In fact, my grandfather was a pastor, baptized me, water baptized, uh, when I was just an infant. But then when I started reading the scriptures and began to see how, well, really, water baptism are for those who make a profession of faith in Christ, 
I realized that my tradition, as fond as it is, was not really biblical in that one regard, at least. And so for some of you, if you've come from church backgrounds, if you've come from certain traditions, you might have a preconceived idea about the topic of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And I'm just going to ask, you know, maybe those, maybe those preconceived ideas and those traditions are, are biblical. Maybe they line up, but maybe they don't. And as we, we read through this, just ask the Lord for fresh eyes uh, and fresh ears and a fresh heart to just kind of read Scripture and may it challenge all of our traditions because it really needs to be about what does the Bible say. And so it doesn't need to be a divisive subject, but unfortunately it is one of those topics that has caused great consternation in the body of Christ. And so I pray that as we just make our way through the book of Acts, uh, that we will uh, just see what God has to say about this very important subject. I mean, the subject of the Holy Spirit, uh, the baptism of the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, these, these things are necessary for us uh, in the church age today. I'll tell you that, you know, my introduction to the whole book might even be a little bit longer than what we actually get through in the first chapter, but we'll, we're going to take our time. We're going to go through this. This is heavy, important, detailed stuff for us. And, uh, it's a great handbook for how the church should look, function, operate, and be even in today's age. So, and by the way, I alluded to those of you who might have certain traditions or preconceived ideas. And then there are people who, you know, you, you just come to church. Maybe you're, you're saved. You don't have any preconceived ideas about much of anything related to the Bible or, and you are a breath of fresh air because you, you know, there's none of this holding on to the death about certain things that you're just like wide open to, okay, what does God say? What does the Bible say? So whether you have tradition and church background or no church background, I'm glad that all of you are here. So for you note takers, let's dive in a little bit to an intro here. The writer of the book of Acts is Luke. He is the only Gentile writer of scripture. He uh, is the same Luke who wrote the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Luke. But all the other writers of the Bible were Jewish. Now, of course, God is the author of Scripture, but he used different men to be instruments of uh, his communication. So when I say the writer, Luke is the writer, but God is the author. And Luke is inspired to write what we have here uh, in the book of Acts. It is written sometime between the years 60 and 69 A.D., Luke was a physician and a traveling companion of Paul. The book of Acts that we're about to read and the gospel of Luke are both addressed to Theophilus. You'll see it in chapter 1, verse 1, the same thing you see in Luke 1, 1. And there is some uh, debate as to who or what is Theophilus. So one idea is that it, it may very well be Luke's employer because as a physician in the day, if you were a physician, I know that carries some clout in today's culture, but not back in the day. Back in the day, if you were a physician, you were probably somebody's slave. You were their indentured servant. You belonged to them. You provided a service to them, but you were basically employed by them. So Theophilus might be Luke's employer, or it could be a pseudonym. Some believe that it is a pseudonym for the church because Theophilus in Greek is a translation of theos and phileo, and it translates uh, lover of God. So it could be that Luke is writing to the church in general, to believers, and is using Theophilus as a pseudonym. We don't really know. 
The Acts of the Apostles, that's what the book of Acts means. It is the Acts of the Apostles. It really could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles because what what we read about through the book of Acts are some incredible displays of the power and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There are 28 chapters. There are roughly 30 miracles over a period of 31 years. Now, again, because the predominant theme is the Holy Spirit, we got to spend just a little bit of time first talking about the Holy Spirit, because the book of Acts really is a book about the Holy Spirit and the church. The term Holy Spirit, those words, that phrase is found 57 times throughout the book of Acts. So who or what is the Holy Spirit? We, we got to get a baseline of definition here before we really dive into this book so we understand who or what is at work here when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a real being. Uh, he is the third person of the Trinity. Again, the Bible uh, displays God as one God who reveals himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. So the Holy, when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we're speaking of that third part of the Trinity, or we could also say the triune Godhead, one God, but he reveals himself in three persons. So when we speak of the Holy Spirit, that's who we're speaking of, the third part of the Trinity. And to point out the idea that, that the Holy Spirit is a real being versus like just kind of this mystical, kind of mysterious thing, we point to a couple of things. First of all, that Jesus uses personal pronouns to describe the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16 to 17, listen to the number of times that Jesus uses the personal pronoun. He says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit is not to be talked of as an it. The Holy Spirit is a real being, third part of the Trinity. That's why Jesus even uses the person, the pronouns he, him in describing the Holy Spirit because he is that third part of the Trinity. Also, he uh, has all the attributes of personality. So that's what makes him a real being because rather than just this thing of personality, by that I mean a mind, a will, and emotions. 1 Corinthians 2.11, it says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So in order for the Spirit of God to know the thoughts of God, the Holy Spirit must have a mind. We also see that he has a will. In 1 Corinthians 12.11, it says, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines, or King James says, just as he wills. So the Holy Spirit has a will. Finally, the Holy Spirit has emotion. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It is possible for us to grieve the Spirit of God. So he has emotion. And so those things combined, a mind, will, and emotion is what then attributes unto the Holy Spirit the idea of personhood in in the sense of being a real spiritual being. Number two about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit 
has always existed, being co-equal and co-eternal with God. We see him, for example, present at the time of creation. We're all the way back in Genesis 1-2, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So he is present, uh, co-eternal, co-equal with God. We also see in the Old Testament that he empowered specific individuals at different times. For example, you can read throughout the Old Testament, Moses was filled with the Spirit. Gideon was filled with the Spirit. Samson, Saul, David, just to name a few. The difference is between the Old Testament and the New Testament in relation to the subject of the Holy Spirit is that when we get here now to the New Testament, particularly probably next week when we get to chapter 2 of Acts, what we see is then that the Holy Spirit becomes available to all believers at the time of Pentecost and on. So when we read Acts chapter 2 and we see now the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, that's the main difference between the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's not that suddenly the Holy Spirit appears on the world scene in the book of Acts. He's always existed, being a part of the, the Trinity of God. But it's that in the Old Testament, he only was assigned on certain individuals. Whereas now, the Holy Spirit is available for all who are believers in Christ. So that's the major difference between the Old and New Testament. Now, in addition, again, back at the top, first line, the book of Acts is a book about the Holy Spirit and the church. So not only do we need to understand the book of Acts in relation to the Holy Spirit, but we also need to understand the book of Acts in relation to the church. The word church is found 20 times in the book of Acts. It is the Greek word ekklesia, from two words, uh, ek meaning uh, out of, kaleo meaning to call. The real literal definition of the church is the called out ones. We are the called out ones. We are called out from the world to be different and distinct as followers of Christ. And we are also, there's kind of a double-edged meaning here, we are also called to go out from the church to influence the world. But we are the called out ones. That is ecclesia, and the word church mentioned 20 times throughout the book of Acts. And in particular, what the Bible in Acts communicates to us about the church is, first of all, the birth of the church. For all intents and purposes, we're going to see the birth of the church. Because up until this point, remember, Jesus, his ministry lasts about three and a half years. He dies roughly age 33, dies on a cross. And then he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven. When does the church, in terms of an organized living organism, actually begin? It begins when the Lord Jesus ascends, hands the baton of ministry for a lost and dying world to the believers. Holy Spirit comes, empowers, and fills the early church and subsequently all believers in Christ and now we become the extension of Christ's ministry in this world. That's the formation of the church. So what we read in the book of Acts is really the birth of the church, as well as the growth of the church. And we read about the growth of the church both numerically and spiritually. That there is an incredible exponential growth numerically when people become believers. We're going to see here when Peter has the opportunity to preach the first evangelical message 
of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2, and it says about 3,000 people get saved. And we're going to see rapidly the, the church grows numerically, but it grows spiritually. Uh, because you have believers who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, getting filled with the Spirit, getting empowered for works and service and to be witnesses in the world. And so there's this incredible growth of the church, as well as we see the theme of unity uh, in the church. Uh, King James talks about being in one accord. Uh, in, in NIV it says they were together. But it speaks of more than just proximity. It speaks of the unity of the church coming together, understanding our differences, but in spite of our differences, uniting around the common mission of the gospel of Jesus, believing in Jesus as Lord, and then going out from there to affect uh, our world. So there's a heavy emphasis on unity of the church. Because, you know, figure it makes sense, right? If Jesus entrusts the ministry to the church, and then the church is all divisive, and he can't get along in all these factions then how effective will we really be in reaching the world? And it is something, quite honestly, that the church has to work at very intentionally to not be so you know, divided in a bunch of factions and divisions because otherwise we, we become ineffective to reach people for Christ when, when the church is fighting with each other. So there's an emphasis on unity, and then there's this emphasis on power. There's this emphasis on power. The Greek word for power is dunamis, and that word is found 12 times in the book of Acts. It's noteworthy uh, most, I don't know, probably everybody, I suppose, when you reach some age of uh, understanding much of anything in your world, knows when I say Nobel Prizes. You know, everybody understands Nobel Prizes, chemistry, physics, uh, literature, economics, peace, okay? They distribute Nobel Prizes today. Nobel Prizes were named after Alfred Nobel. And um, he, he was the one who established his wills and with an endowment to continue paying honor to people uh, who achieve success in those various areas, like six different areas, chemistry, physics, as I mentioned. Uh, but a lot of people don't know is that Alfred Nobel started a will with that endowment because he wanted his reputation to be different in the world. He wanted his reputation to be different because in 1888, his brother Ludwig, Ludwig Nobel, died and a, a French newspaper accidentally printed the obituary of Alfred Nobel. And the, the obituary said that it was Alfred who died, which wasn't true, it was Ludwig who died. But when they printed the obituary about Alfred, they called him the merchant of death. And they called him the merchant of death because in 1867, Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. He's only today known for Nobel Prizes, that's his legacy, but he determined to rid his legacy of that title, merchant of death, in that accidental obituary, and they, the newspaper called him the merchant of death because after he invented dynamite, they saw the potential for the destruction of dynamite, didn't think it was a good thing. So that's why they labeled him that way. He said, I'm going to change my legacy, and I'm going to issue Nobel Prizes with the endowment that I leave as a legacy. I mention that because the word dynamite comes from this Greek word dunamis, power. And to be honest with you, I'd like to see a little dynamite in the church today. <laughs> Amen? That the power of the Holy Spirit would just begin to do some explosive things, in a good way, not in a destructive way, but do some explosive, powerful things in the lives of individuals and in the life of the church. So this is our subject matter for tonight, and uh, let me read here from chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, 
And then if we have time, we'll finish out the chapter. But first 11 verses, and then we'll come back and we'll dig out these verses. So let me just read the whole section first. Verse 1 says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has said by his own authority, but you will receive power. There's dunamis, power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All right, let me break down these first 11 verses, and I'm going to break them down, first of all, by three important things we learn actually still here about Jesus, because This is the closing chapter of his public ministry. Sometimes we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we think, well, that's the end of his public ministry. Not yet. First 11 verses here communicate the closing chapter, the closing book uh, of his public ministry. And one of the things we find here in these first 11 chapters is that Jesus remains on earth for 40 days after his resurrection. When Jesus was crucified, he was buried. Three days later, he rose again. And then he still continued to walk on earth in his glorified body for 40 more days. And that's what we read there in verse uh, 3. It says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it even points out, Paul points out that on one occasion, Jesus even appeared at one moment to 500 people. So he, at various times, over a period of 40 days, appeared to different individuals and gave many convincing proofs, it says here, that he was alive. Apparently there, verse 3, it implies that his own disciples were still a little bewildered, like, you know, are you sure you're, you're legit? Yes, I'm legit. So that's one thing we find here from these first 11 verses. The other thing that we find here is that Jesus reminds his disciples about the Holy Spirit and their witness. And that's the section we'll talk in a minute about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and that he calls them to be witnesses. And then the third thing we're going to see here in this text is that Jesus then returns to heaven from earth. Uh, the Bible is, tells us that Jesus came from heaven Again, being part of that trinity of the Godhead, so God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that when God entered the world, he condescended to our level, took on flesh, that's Jesus. And now after Jesus' ministry is complete, he's ministered, 
He has uh, died, he has been buried, he rose again, and now he ascends, he returns back into heaven after these 40 days following his resurrection. The book of Acts is awe-inspiring as you see the Christian church take off. You see these frightened disciples who had scattered, rallied together, and then spread out beyond their borders. It takes great faith to do what these believers did, just like it takes great faith to spread the word today. How are you engaging with this series so far? Do you have any questions or concerns? If so, feel free to email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd be happy to hear your prayer requests, too. Are you living in or visiting the Leesburg, Virginia area? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find our service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and links to download our mobile app. Just look under the Teachings tab. Once again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of Acts that we hope inspire you. We look forward to you joining us again here on Cornerstone Connection. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.